that's that. <clears throat> so in the in the first evening, in the first opening welcoming, I mentioned uh, teaching from Dogen, Zen Master Dogen, who said, to study the Buddha way is to study the self. To study the Buddha way is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self or relax the sense of self-consciousness. To forget the self is to awaken with all things. What we've been doing here so far and what the teachings are pointing us at and what the talks have been pointing us at is this simple understanding of the Dharma. That we study the self to see what's true here. What is this self we've been taking to be so much who we are? What's its place? What's its limitation? What's the skillful means to work with it? And by skillful, really the most important is what's the compassionate, kind way to work with ourself that allows for mindfulness to deepen, to richen, to broaden, and to clarify so that we start to awaken with all things. And how he talked beautifully, gave the story, the Buddha's own story, of how he sought happiness, how he first saw it as quite a privileged, from his privileged upbringing as a prince, and a total hedonist. And if you've, if you've never read the text, there's some wild stories about the Buddha as a hedonist. And, you know, he tasted every sensual pleasure, it said. And that's, there can be a lot of those. He's, <laughs> Even back then, there was a lot of those. And then he did this kind of pendulum swing, right? Which many of us have done. Maybe we've been very hedonistic for a while, and then you do this pendulum swing. It's like, oh, that's just suffering. You know, we see that even though it's pleasurable, it can cause quite a lot of pain for ourselves and others. And then we do this swing. Okay, I'm not doing that anymore. I'm I'm going to be really virtuous and so on, or I'm less than virtuous, I'm going to be celibate, I'm not going to do anything, I'm just going to not, I'm going to be kind of tight. And we, <laughs> we, we make a big swing, and the Buddha made this swing, and he became an ascetic. And I mean, it's how he said, like, he almost died because his asceticism was so strong. He was living on one grain of rice a day. And, and uh, when he finally realized, actually it said the gods looked down and they couldn't tell if he was alive or dead. That, that's how severely uh, emaciated he was from his ascetic practice. And it's, a, it's actually a beautiful story, beautiful part of the story, because um, uh, a young woman, right, the feminine principle comes forward and, and sees that the Buddha's almost dying and offers him some rice milk, you know, nourishment, real nourishment. And he, he realizes he needs this, that this ascetic path is not working. And so he takes the rice milk. He gets totally put down by his ascetic friends. I mean, seriously, dissed, I mean, cut off, you know, 
uh, uh, you know, made a scapegoat like you're bad and you'll never get there. But he realizes as he takes the offering by this young woman um, that it provides the nourishment the body needs and the body is to be respected and cared for and, and appreciated as part of what's needed for us to awaken. And it's from there that he realizes the middle path. And then he goes, as how he says, and he sat down and he was enlightened. He realized the highest happiness at that point. And when Pamela talked about that night when he sat down and Mara coming, I, I hope, I, and I'm sure that gave all of us this context to see what it's like, because that's what happens to us is we sit down, we say, okay, I'm just going to be with the breath. And then Mara shows up in all his valences, right, of agitation and restlessness and tiredness and wanting something that's not here and not wanting what is here and then doubting the whole process about why am I even here and then getting lost in fantasies about how great life's going to be someday. And then, or remembering, you know, everything that happened three days ago or 20 years ago as if it's happening now. But actually we lose this moment when Mara attacks like that or Mara comes. And I, I think it's important, I don't remember if Pamela said it or not, but I think it's helpful to know that even after the Buddha was enlightened, right, so Mara attacked the armies of Mara. What right do you have? The Buddha touches the earth. The earth, again, supports his right to be here, our right to be here, our birthright, to really be here in the full sense of to be, not just to do, but to be. And he's awakened. But it's a very interesting and important uh, uh, um, piece that Mara keeps coming even after the Buddha's awakened. All through the text. And really, they're kind of friends. You know, it's like Buddha and Mara. It's a team. It's, it's, it's a little like... It's a little like George Burns and Gracie Allen or something. It's a little... I'm dating myself here. It's a little... You know, it's a little like they go together. If you, 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 you have a Buddha and you have a Mara, and they play off each other. And so Mara continues to come and challenge the Buddha and tempt the Buddha. And the Buddha, as Pam said, the practice of mindfulness is the key. I see you, Mara, is what the Buddha says when Mara comes. And the Mara, it said, even comes in these disguises and... and um, uh, and then the Buddha says, I see you, Mara. And then it always says how Mara kind of slinks away, saying, the Blessed One has seen me. And, you know, <laughs> I just can't, can't get there. But one of the things you hear is the Buddha doesn't, isn't actually really harsh with Mara or mean to Mara or denigrating of Mara. That Buddha understands the place or the role of Mara. And so we've been looking at Mara, we've been looking at our suffering, how our suffering arises, how it comes, when it comes. And the question is not to, we're not 
practicing to judge it or to condemn it or to think we're wrong because it's here because that's a that's um as the dalai lama would say that's an incorrect idea in buddhist cosmology suffering is part of human life it's not all of human life and human life is as the poem pam was using last night from david white as he was saying this is the world to become free in human life is a realm of existence in which we can become free in which we can awaken that that goes hand in hand with human life has suffering in it and it's not a mistake if we're suffering our suffering is not we're not doing something wrong we're not the cause of suffering there are uh, so many causes and conditions for our suffering for each of our suffering some of them are uh uh maybe um, personal in some of the ways we act but some of them may be from our uh, the influences of our childhood or our families or the ways we've suffered at the hands of other people or the cultural suffering we might have experienced or the kinds of uh, um suffering our parents experienced that got handed down to us even as they were doing the best they could and so the historical suffering i i don't know if you can see it it all lives now actually in us it it can't be any other way we carry the whole of human suffering here and yet we also have this possibility of liberating human suffering so one of the important pieces in working with our the difficulties that come on retreat the agitated mind the thinking mind the the emotions that come the the impressions from the past that have stuck with us and you know it's so interesting to watch well, let, let me just say so the way we want to work with really everything that is happening here is two important factors mindfulness kindness mindfulness and kindness i i used to say uh, on retreat you can't be too kind to yourself here you can't be too kind it doesn't mean to be indulgent that's not what i'm saying i'm saying real kindness and real kindness is seeing suffering and letting the heart respond with its wisdom and so seeing that we're suffering we are suffering each of us here has suffered will suffer and continue to suffer really until we're totally free um and so when we're mindful we want to be mindful of what's the experience that's happening now and what's our reaction to it so we're working with the breath we're trying to stay with the breath and then there's a there's a lot of agitation about something that happened last year with a good friend and had a fight and we've been fighting ever since and I'm pissed still and I'm angry and and the whole the whole content 
gets stirred up, the conceptual part gets stirred up, and we're, oh, I'm aware, I'm thinking, I'm thinking. But it's not just thinking, there's a whole energy now in the body. And we can start to be mindful of the energy and the, uh, the, the forcefulness that's there. And, and we're feeling contracted. And then there's, and so, and so that's just the simple mindfulness of anger, right? There's a conceptual piece, there's an energetic somatic piece of anger, and there's the affect that we call the totality of it, that, the feeling that we call anger. And we want to be mindful of it. We want to we wanna feel it. We want to know it. We want to experience it. First of all, because it's what's happening now. It's true right now. It has a relative truth right now. Also, because mindfulness brings the possibility of the anger self-liberating or letting go. And when I think about what actually happens in my own practice, I, I like to tell people this, because this is my experience, is I don't let go of anything. <laughs> I, I really don't. I, I, if I can let go of it, it's not a big deal. Let's put it that way. <laughs> you know, it doesn't really have a lot of juice if I can let go of it. Oh, it's like, you know, somebody said something, I'll just let it go. Great, I'm fine. Oh, somebody said something, I'll just let it go. Shit, I'm going to pissed. You know. Actually, I'm not, I can't, if it really sticks, I can't let it go. What I know how to do, what I've learned, is how to pay attention, how to be mindful of the stickiness of things. And so to be very open to the somatic, energetic, physical, emotional, mental experience that we might call anger. And as what I've seen is as I've learned to pay attention to it, and here's the the important secondary piece. In paying attention to it, I also want to pay attention to my reaction to the anger. In other words, so I see I'm angry and I'm feeling it, and then I'm also feeling like I want this to go away. I'm tired of being angry. I hate the anger. If I'm not mindful of that, that has its own grab. That has its own Velcro-like... It it works beautifully with the anger. Like Velcro has two things and then they stick and you can't, you know, you have to rip them apart. So the reaction will work in tandem with the anger to keep things in place. And so I want to be... And here's the other caveat which is you don't have to want it to be here either. You cannot want it to be here, right? You can have the anger. You cannot like it. You can, and then see it's aversion. You're having aversion to the anger. You don't have to get rid of the version. Here's my famous Zen line. Ready? Aversion to aversion is aversion. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> So we don't even have to be aversive to our version. What we want to do is be mindful of it, which means be open to it, allow it, accept it, see it. Let it live in such a way that it can self-liberate because none of it is fixed, actually. What fixes it is our 
holding on or pushing away, grasping or rejecting, keeping or denying. That, those attitudes start to fix things. But if we can let the uh, anger live and the aversion live, it's alive. It's quite vital. And then, we can, and then the vitality can live. And what I've seen, for example, now, now the other here, I'm giving a lot of caveats here. There's a lot of sidebars, but one sidebar is it will self-liberate, but not on our timetable. Right? We'll have an agenda. Okay, I'm going to sit with this now for the next 20 minutes, and it'll be gone. <laughs> no. This points to something else, that there's a higher value that we um, align with at a certain point because the practice, reality asks us to. In other words, if we value comfort, feeling good, dharma doesn't work so well. If we value security, safety, I mean, and those are fine values. They're not bad values. But ultimately, mindfulness asks us to be with what's true. And if what's true is that we're pissed, that's what's here. If what's true is we don't like it being pissed, that's also true. Can we be with what is true? And it, in a certain way, um, my, and you can try this for yourself, and I, it's a pretty simple exercise, Try to be mindful of being happy when you feel like shit. Or, or even just crummy. Try to be mindful of being Okay, I'm going to be happy now. I don't feel happy. I don't see any of, the, any of the felt sense or experiential indicators that I'm happy, but I'm going to be mindful of being happy. It's not true. You can't be mindful of what's not here. What we can be mindful of is what is here. And we can, and as we practice, we begin to trust this, the truth. Even if it's relative truth, even if it doesn't look spiritual, even if it's, you know, the, the worst parts of us or parts of us we don't like to accept, we start to learn, oh, not only can we accept them, really in the spirit of what uh, Pamela, that, that poem from the beginning of the retreat, no part left out. I see myself completely. No part left out. Um, that's the spirit of mindfulness. No part left out. And so we start to see, oh, we can actually accept everything that's here. And this, the power of the acceptance is that everything starts to reveal its nature because it's all of the same nature. And one way you could say, sometimes you could say, oh, it's all Buddha nature, ultimately. Or you could say its nature is that it's empty. Or its nature is that it's impermanent. And so everything has the possibility of revealing the Dharma. And so whatever's true, whatever's here, is our path to the deepest Dharma. So I am hoping to encourage you 
to both be very kind with what comes, very respectful actually of what comes, even if it's a so-called negative emotion, sadness or anger or irritation or boredom. I mean, boredom is such a great mind state to pay attention to. It runs our whole economy, boredom. (laughs) I mean, really, if you really contemplate it, we get bored and then we want to fill the boredom. And we're never taught, most, most of us aren't, to pay attention to this experience, which is so common to human beings. And so here we have this beautiful time, amazing <coughs> space, beautiful conditions to pay attention to the human experience, which includes all of what I'm describing. No part left out, boredom and irritation and... Um, hurt and fear and joy and happiness and peacefulness and quiet and stillness, love, compassion, happiness. It's all, it's all here. The whole Dharma, as I said, the whole Dharma sits right here. And our work here is to build the, develop the skillful means to begin to turn and look and see what's here what's here on the surface. And then, and what happens, it's kind of, mad, there's a magical process. The surface starts to relax, right? To study the Buddha way is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self or for that self-consciousness to start to relax or the self-centeredness to start to relax or the self-involvement in a certain way to start to relax. And, um, and, and it starts, our practice starts to deepen as we get here in a more full way beyond what we might call the usual sense of self. And um, I want to be very careful here because there is no judgment of the sense of self. It's not a bad thing. It's actually totally natural and a good thing that we develop a sense of self. And the truth be told, if one does not develop a sense of self, that's a serious disorder. The way we're designed, for whatever reason, I don't know exactly the reason, but the way we're designed is that we need to develop a sense of self in order to learn how to navigate this world uh, and function in this world. And it's a certain level of maturity psychologically. In in psychological theory, you develop, one of the theories, you develop some kind of coherent sense of self by the age of six. And that's that's a really great developmental achievement. And then we, we mature that achievement, you know, by hopefully growing up and continuing to mature. But you'll notice, and because I'm going to talk about self and selflessness a bit now, you'll notice there might be a mind tendency to start making the self bad or wrong or something you need to get rid of or something you shouldn't have. And I'm not saying that. I'm going to read you something and you'll hear how language can get tricky. And this is, um, I, think, I think you mentioned this 
maybe the first night about the prides, three prides, you called it. This is a slightly different translation than how he was talking about. Um, and you'll hear. This is from the Buddha. He's talking very personally to his students, to the monks and nuns. And he's, and he's talking about his life, what his life was like and what happened for him. And he said, uh, monks, nuns, I lived in refinement, right? He was a prince. I lived in refinement, utmost refinement, total refinement. My father even had lotus ponds made in our palace, one where red lotuses bloomed, one where white lotuses bloomed, one where blue lotuses bloomed, all for my sake. He says, a white sunshade was held over me day and night to protect me from cold, from heat, from dirt and dew. I had three palaces, one for the cold season, one for the hot season, one for the rainy season. During the rainy season, during the four months of the rainy season, I was entertained in the rainy season palace by minstrels without a single man among them. And I did not once come down from that palace. Everybody get that? (laughs) Right? He, He lived the hedonistic life. So, and then he says though, he says, even though, even though I was endowed with such fortune, such total refinement, the thought occurred to me, he had, he contemplated, he said, when an untaught ordinary person himself or herself, subject to aging, not beyond aging, sees another who is aged. One is horrified, humiliated, and disgusted, oblivious to themselves that they too are subject to aging. If I, who am subject to aging, not beyond aging, were to be horrified, humiliated, and disgusted on seeing another person who is aged, that would not be fitting for me. And as I notice this, the typical young person's intoxication with youth entirely dropped away. And he was a young man. This is, he was enlightened, I think, in about 35. Yes, right? So this is probably his late 20s. He's still a relatively young man. And he says, as I noticed this, the young person's intoxication with youth entirely dropped away. This is what Howie was referring to as the pride. And he goes on, he says, even though I was endowed with such fortune, total refinement, thought occurred to me. And he has a similar contemplation about illness, about those who are subject to illness, not beyond illness. And if one sees someone who is ill and reacts, is horrified, humiliated, disgusted, or oblivious to themselves, that we too are subject to illness. He says, that would not be fitting for me, meaning that doesn't make sense, actually. That doesn't make sense for me to think that this is also not my lot. And he says, I'm noticing this, the healthy person's intoxication with health entirely dropped away. And he continues, he's talking to the monks and nuns. He says, even though I'm endowed with such good fortune, I had this reflection seeing that um, people are subject to death, not beyond death, and that one who sees another who is dead, if one is horrified or humiliated, disgusted, oblivious, that, oh, we too are subject to death, that would not be fitting, that wouldn't make sense. And so I, I, and so, 
he said, and as I noticed this, the living person's intoxication with life entirely dropped away. Entirely dropped away. And this was part of his movement towards freedom and the dropping away of that intoxication with youth, with health, and with life. Now, and I bring the story up because I think it's a beautiful story about insight, right? He had some insight into the nature of reality and the nature of our own existence. Often, when people hear this, right, the intoxication with youth, health, and, and um, life, they think it's a negative, that it's a negative thing, that he's saying something negative about youth or health or life. But you notice he's not saying anything negative. He doesn't say one shouldn't uh, 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 enjoy youth, appreciate health, love life. He's pointing at a misunderstanding of what's true and that we need to pay attention to the intoxication that comes when we don't see clearly the way things are. That this life, this body, this person is subject to the same suffering as every other person in the world, as every other living being is subject to. And that we are of the same nature in this way. And this understanding of impermanence begins to point us at a connectedness or a communion that we share that's beyond the small sense of self. It's similar to uh, another way we could think about it, and from the poem that Pamela used, where she, or, or the story about the Buddha touching the earth and about, it was in the poem also, I can't remember how he said it in the poem, uh, but it was about uh, acknowledging our right to be here and um, that this world was made for freedom. Um, if, we, if we pay attention, and you could just take, let's do just a 20, 30 second meditation. You don't even have, you can close your eyes or not, but you don't have to be formal. But just notice, if you start, one way you can be mindful of sensations, this is in the four foundations of mindfulness, and we might teach it on a longer retreat. But the teaching is to, to um, be aware of the elemental nature of our experience. That if you feel pressure or hardness or heaviness, it's one way to think about it, it's what's called the earth element, the element of hardness. Or if you're aware of heat, it's warm in the room, that's the, the uh, heat element. Right? So the earth element, the fire element, the heat. If you're aware of kind of um, the fluidity of body or the cohesion of your sense of body, that cohesive principle is considered the water element. Like if you put water with flour, it makes something more cohesive. That's part of the water element. And you can feel these things on an elemental level. You can start to feel the solidity or the warmth or the cohesion or just the breath is the air element, the movement in the air element. 
And this is, on a, on a certain fundamental level, this is what we are. These four elements are combined over and over again for, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50, 70, 80, 90, 100 years, and then they disperse. Everything in the universe could be seen as made of the same elements as what we're made of. That the unity of reality expresses itself in many different ways. We are an expression of something bigger than ourself. This elemental nature, you just, it's, it's why I believe, why we like going out in nature is soothing or, or satisfying or nourishing or relaxing or opening because we are nature. We are not, we're not separate. We don't actually, it's like nature going out into itself. We are nature. We are the same expression of this kind of magical existence that appears, sustains for a while, and disappears like a breath. (coughs) The breath being the microcosm and we're the macrocosm, or in some sense, we're the macrocosm in the whole universe. No, we're the microcosm, the whole universe is the macrocosm. There's actually, there's a whole beautiful Buddhist teaching about this, about these mirrors in which everything is reflected and everything else. It's quite beautiful. So I, I read the story about intoxication partly because I love it and I think it's a beautiful teaching and it points to the kind of insight can arise, that can arise right here. We start to see, oh, this idea that we're going to live forever, or be young forever, or healthy forever, just, those are just ideas, they're not the truth. The truth is everything is impermanent. And that maybe, sometimes it, it scares us. It's like, oh shit, everything is impermanent. My God, every... But it's always been that way anyway, so... <laughs> <laughs> You don't have to get too worried about it. <laughs> it really, it's not actually a problem. It, it wasn't a problem before if you didn't worry about it, so you don't have to worry about it now. But it can begin to change how we see things in such a way that we start to see beyond the conventional way the world reality is seen and known. Beyond the habitual way we see things, and maybe in a deeper way, maybe it allows the heart to see more fully. And so we, we can love what's here even more fully because we see it's it not going to be here forever. The, t- the, the teaching from Ajahn Chah was he would pick up a cup. Did you say this? I can't remember. You know, and say, oh, the, you know, this cup is already broken. It's already broken. And because I know this, I can appreciate it. I appreciate its beauty and its uh, clarity here, its beautiful glass cup and its function and I drink out of it and I, I but I, I don't have to, I know it's nature, it's nature is the nature of every, like everything in the universe. It'll appear, it appears for a while and then it disappears and, and, and to start to see things as they are or things as it is, as Suzuki Roshi would say, because he would, 
he would do the, it's a beautiful teaching of the union of one and two that there's not one and there's not two either not one thing, there's not two things. I shouldn't go there. <laughs> I that's a whole nother talk. So. Pardon? Somebody said something. Um, um, uh, there's a kind of appreciation that seeing things as they are allows us to, uh, allows a certain kind of wisdom to come forward because we're seeing the truth, the Dharma. Just and it's simple. We all know it's things are impermanent, but there's levels where we consciously or often unconsciously we don't actually believe it, or we resist it. And so that's one of and this impermanence helps us when we start to look at the idea of self, and see that the self is also of the same nature of everything in the world. It's kind of a construct. Do you remember before they called you, whoever they call you now? Right? Anybody remember lying in the crib? And they were saying, oh, that's Eugene. Look at Eugene. And you're looking around. Who? Where? Who are they talking about? <laughs> they didn't, I didn't know, right? They were talking, you know, they're saying, oh, Eugene's doing good. And I'm like, oh, where is he? And then at some point, oh, that's me. I'm Eugene. That's a construct. And it's a good construct. I like the construct of Eugene. (laughs) I wouldn't have it any other way, really. It's a skillful construct, but it's a construct. And constructs have their place, their skillfulness, their function, their usefulness. But they're not the thing itself. They're not the thing itself. You know, it's a construct, it's a concept. The, and the Buddha's teaching, what the Buddha liked to do, was start to, um, to help people see he would deconstruct concepts. So I'll do a kind of traditional modern version. He would use a cart. I'll use a car. Car is a concept. It's the name we put on something. You know, whether it's a Prius or a Hummer, right? It's a car, okay? Now let's deconstruct together. We've got to, let's take the Hummer because we don't like those anyways. Big Hummer, big, big Hummer, right? Let's take those big bumpers off that they got that look like they're going to ram through something and let's take off those lights. They've got five sets of lights, you know, the tail lights, we're taking those off and then Let's take off those big doors, you know, take those off, and the side panels on each side, and the roof, and the roof rack, and those windows, we're taking those, we're, we're kind of, we're being neat about it, but we're piling stuff up. <laughs> and then inside, we're taking out those seats, you know, and then the steering wheel, and the gear shift, and the panel, we're taking that all out. And then, you know, we start to deconstruct the chassis, Take, take that apart, the wheels come off, the axles come off, the drivetrain comes out, the engine, start to take the engine apart, all the different pieces of the engine, whatever computer they have in the car now, we're taking that out, all apart, all the chips are coming out, everything's coming out, we've got it all laid out now. Where's the car? 
The car is constructed. It's a concept that we put on something that's made of something else. And of course, we can continue to deconstruct. We could deconstruct the everything there, the plastic, the steel, into some pretty elemental parts, right? And actually beyond, beyond earth, air, fire, water, I mean, atoms and subatomic particles, I mean, everything is a construct. I don't know what the f- smallest particle is, but I have some idea, I could be wrong, but my idea in my mind is when they get to that, it's mostly there's nothing there, even with that. Right? Everything is constructed from that first base of almost nothing. Right? And then we get a car. Okay. So that's, that's where the Buddha would start. He would deconstruct. Then he would say, now let's look at self. Right? Eugene. Okay. Let's start deconstructing Eugene. And he would, he would do it physically, actually. He would say, okay, there's Eugene, the hair on his head. Now let's take that and put that over here. The hair on the body. For some reason, those got separated. Put those over there. <laughs> I don't know. You know, or is using the the uh, the skin? Okay, let's take that and put that somewhere. Is using the flesh? Put that there. No, no using so far. Okay, is using the muscles? Put the muscles down, nice, neat. Then the tendons and you know and all kinds of stuff you know we don't even want to go into really but the the, the liquids the blood uh, the the different organs right the different organs that might we take the liver and the kidney and the pancreas and the intestines and the heart and the lungs and we're setting them all out real nice and put it on plastic and make it kind of nice you know. And then all the, the whole skeletal system and the nervous system and the whatever systems there are, we're putting them all out. And can you find Eugene in any of that? The brain, put the brain down there, put that down. Where's Eugene? Is there such a thing as Eugene in all of those constituent parts? Or is Eugene a concept? A good concept, skillful concept, <laughs> vigorous, vital, handsome concept, <laughs> but a concept, right? And so now you could just hear. So there's a simpler way to do this. Now, if you would again, we'll do it just a twenty or thirty second meditation. Um, if you shut your eyes. Now just sense your body and see where the sense of self is. Is there a sense of self? Where's Elise? Or where's Allison? Or where's Todd? Or where is Robert? Or where is whoever you, whoever they started calling you when you were a baby, Carrie, or whoever it might be? Can you find something in your body that is that name or that self. Now you can also add, as you're doing it, look into the whole span of your consciousness of body and mind and see if there is a self there. Except as an idea. But see if there's something uh, inherent 
as a self or not. And if you look carefully with the eye of wisdom, the, the awareness we've been cultivating, you'll see actually there's no inherent sense of self other than an idea that this is me. But what, what happens is you don't disappear. So something gets negated, but something's left. And we want to affirm what's left. Okay, was that clear? Anybody find a self? Okay. But anybody disappear? No. Okay, so something's here. So, so we're not, see, the, the notion of what's called not-self, and that's how the Buddha talked about it. He didn't say mostly, the, he didn't say there's no self or get rid of the self or the self is bad. He said, pay attention to what's self and not-self. What's self is a contingently arisen truth, reality. You know, it has its relative truth. Eugene's here giving a talk. You're sitting there. Eugene knows where Eugene's car is and Eugene's home and all that stuff. It's good. But that's not all that's here. In fact, that is maybe, in some sense, the least of what is here in a certain way. That as we begin to see that the sense of self is a construct and we see, oh, it can't be found anywhere in the body and mind, something remains. We want to affirm what remains. This is called in Buddhism affirming negations, affirming negations. And there's, and we're gonna, we'll do a little bit more affirming negation too, just to play with it. And it's good to play with it. Okay, here's one more. Uh, I want you all to, and, and this is again, in the spirit of play, try it out. Or in the spirit of exploration. Take on this idea about yourself. Take it on. I am a bad meditator. Okay? You probably have never had this idea before. <laughs> or even if you've had, even if it was a long time ago, you take on the idea, hold the idea, hold to it, grab it, grasp it. Make it yours. I'm a bad meditator. And notice how it feels. I am a bad meditator. And I don't mean it in the positive way. I'm a bad meditator. No, I don't mean that. I mean, I'm a bad meditator. I'm a terrible meditator. Okay. What do you notice about how it feels if you, if you hold that idea as true about yourself? I'm a bad meditator. What do you notice? You could, pardon? Nausea. 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 Constriction. Constriction. Pardon? It's a bummer. Okay. So now I'm going to give you a slightly less of an idea to hold on to. Hold on to this. Uh, I am, I'm a bad 
But let's cut off the meditator part. We'll leave it more open. I'm a bad. Just see how that feels. I am a bad. I am a bad. And if we hold to it, what, what, is, what do you feel? What's that like? What do you notice? Anybody? Heavy. Heavy. Yeah. Sadness. Sadness. I'm like a puppy who peed in the wrong place. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm a puppy who peed in the wrong place. Yeah, you're bad, puppy. Okay, so let's do one more. Okay, one more. We'll get rid of a bad and just do I am. Just hold that. I am. Just feel that. Let's see what that's like. I am. Okay, what, ha- what, is, what happens with that? We've got rid of a bad meditator. I am. What happens? What do you notice? Feels kind of limiting, okay. Softening, so it's softer. So it's right, okay. So it's not it's not actually a problem. I am, but it's you know maybe a little limiting at times. But it's not like a bad meditator. That's a whole other thing, right? Okay, so let's just let's cut the am. Just hold I. You know, I'm sure you've said this word before. I. Let's see what that's like. Just the I, simple I. Normal, regular I. 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 What happens with that? Anybody? Smoke Pardon? It's like a smoke signal. I can't. It's like a smoke signal. It's like a smoke sig- signal. So it's a little less solid. Pardon? It helps clarify. It helps clarify. Okay. I think that's the first time I felt the body. So the first time he felt the body. Okay. I think it feels separate than my body. Uh huh. Okay. So we've got both. So it's hanging out for you, it's hanging out. Okay. Okay, let's try one more thing now. Just sit for a moment and see what happens if you let go of the eye. What's here? Very relaxing. Very relaxing. Space. Pardon? Space. space is here. So it's relaxing, there's space. The Pardon? The body. The body's here. Also connected to everyone. Connected.
connected to everybody. Uh, pardon? The eye keeps poking its head in. Right. But but what's knowing the eye poking its head in? Right? Okay, so here's what I mean about the affirming negation. We negated that sentence. We we negated that idea, that belief, right? I'm a bad meditator. We did it kind of slowly, like chunk by chunk. And what comes generally at the end when people negate this, space, openness, connectedness, everything, and even the I can be there. But the I is not the predominant thing. It simply has its place. But there's something much more here than the I. And I would offer to you the idea that you all know this, but you may not have recognized it. That when you, if you contemplate self and not self, you can notice the sense of self is usually very kind of um, self-involved or caught up or has a certain kind of uh, subtle or not so subtle contraction to it. But you've all had experiences of not being those ideas of who we are, those beliefs of who we are, those the historical patterns of what's happened to us, that we start that we've all we've all had experiences, whether it's in nature or in or in the arts or in love or in sports or in or in something mundane like just walking down the street at times where we just that sense of self is not what's walking down the street, but we're simply, there's something free here. There's something easy, open, relaxed, awake, present. And so the negation is not to make the sense of self bad. It's to see the truth of its contingency and to affirm emptiness, actually, is what we're affirming. We're affirming the empty nature of the self. And people, and I don't at all like to start with that because people get really nervous when you say it's all empty. But it's like impermanence. It's already been all empty. You know, it's not going to change anything particularly, except that the whole, the possibility of our, our being comes forward in a whole nother way. And it may be the infinite possibility of our being is what comes forward. The magical, mysterious nature of reality itself. Undefinable, ungraspable that we are an expression of like everything else. I think I'll end here with a quote. And it's a quote from a woman named Margaret Fuller. And she said, Suddenly the sun shone out with transparent sweetness. 
like the last smile of a lover, which it will, which it will, the sun will shine, which it will use when it has been unkind all a cold autumn day. She said, I remembered how a little child, I had stopped myself one day on the stairs and asked how I came here. How is it that I seem to be this Margaret Fuller? What does it mean? What shall I do about it? And I remembered, I remembered all the times and the ways in which the same thought had returned. And I saw how long it must be before the soul or the consciousness can learn to act under these limitations of time and space and human nature. But I saw also that it must act in this way. In other words, the sense of self must develop in this way, she says. But I saw also that I must do it and that the consciousness must make all that is false true. And I saw that there was no self, that selfishness was all folly and the result of circumstance. And it was only because I thought self real that I suffered. And I had only to live in the understanding of the all. And all was mine. Remember, to study the Buddha way is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to awaken with all things. And she said, she says, I, uh, and I had only to live in this understanding of the all and all was mine. This truth came to me and I received it unhesitatingly. This was written by Margaret Fuller in 1830. She was one of the early American transcendentalists. Pardon? Read it all? Yeah. Yeah, let's sit and I'll read it all again. And suddenly the sun shone out with that transparent sweetness, like the last smile of a lover, which it will use when it has been unkind all a cold autumn day. And I remembered how, a little child, I had stopped myself one day on the stairs and asked how I came here. How is it that I seem to be this Margaret Fuller? What does it mean? What shall I do about it? I remembered all the times and ways in which the same thought had returned. I saw how long it must be before the soul, the consciousness, can learn to act under these limitations of time and space and human nature. And I, but I saw also that I must do it, that it, the soul, the consciousness, must make all this false true. I saw there was no self that selfish, selfishness was all folly and the result of circumstance, what we would call conditions, that it was only because I thought self real that I suffered and that I had only to live in the idea, the understanding of the all, and all was mine. This truth came to me and I received it unhesitatingly. Over the last few moments here, as we sit 
pay attention not just to what's here, but what knows what is here. Not, the, not simply the particulars of body and heart and mind, but this open, empty, cognizant, radiant awareness that knows everything. The mind, the heart, that is not limited by the ideas of self and is not bound by any concept but knows all concepts, all appearances. period of walking practice now. And I just one more thing. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.